together on <coughs> the new moon <coughs> and full moon days for the recitation of the Patimokha discipline to meditate, chant together is an essential part of our practice. <coughs> As we know in the time of the Buddha, the initial members of the Sangha didn't um, use the Patimokha recitation. It hadn't been um, given by the Buddha yet. The original bhikkhus had enough barami and wasana to be born in the time of a living Buddha. <coughs> and the numbers were small, their intention was pure and their minds were very pure. But over time as the Sangha grew, it was necessary for the Buddha to lay down training rules which gradually formed the Patimokha as we learn and recite today. It's important to see that it's a guide, a support for our practice. <coughs> Any group of people living in society or society itself requires rules, regulations, guidelines for the benefit of everyone, for dealing with problems and issues that come up, for the smooth running of that society, for the peace, the harmony, the success of that society. <coughs> And a monastery is no different. So the Vinaya training that we follow is for the benefit of us all and for the wider benefit of the Buddhist community. It helps to maintain our intention to practice purely for Nibbana and for the removal of Kilesa, unwholesome mental states from our minds and it's supportive of the community as a whole if we practice well then we can be a benefit to those who support us and meet us <coughs> and it's natural when we practice sometimes we forget rules or we're unmindful, even if we have a good intention, we can be unmindful. Sometimes our old habits will affect us so that we might find rules, regulations, inconvenient, annoying, and they might bring up resistance in our mind. Even though the training rules that we've inherited from the Buddha or from Lumpur Cha our teacher in the modern era, are uh, all useful and were 
given out of compassion, wisdom to help us train as bhikkhus, still the mind might resist and dislike or get caught into more negative states, can't be bothered or lazy or <coughs> just prefer to follow our own opinions. So that's very much a part of our practice, is learning how to deal with that skillfully. This is why Lumpur Cha encouraged us to have a lot of patience and humility in the practice because with these qualities of patience, humility, <coughs> it allows us to learn from our situation rather than always follow our moods and reactions to things. <coughs> and the bhikkhu life is one of learning. Learning particularly to see where suffering comes from. <coughs> and in the beginning a lot of the, our suffering is simply not wishing to follow other people's instructions or uh, the Vinaya training rules, the monastic rules and regulations. Especially if we've lived in the lay life and we've been independent, then we find it's somehow we've lost our freedom, our independence to choose, to follow our own moods and preferences. So we often have an attitude that we're somehow worse off coming into the monastery. And because we're still unenlightened, we tend to show that, display that um, in personal ways, in the sense of what we call Sakaya Ditti, personality view. So you know, sometimes there's a, a rule or a training practice we have to do <coughs> that we don't agree with. And then we might blame someone else for telling us that rule or um, be discontent with the place the Sangha, because of the rule. But this is the expression of Sakaya Ditti, a self-view. We somehow feel worse off because we have to follow a rule that we don't immediately agree with, perhaps. Sometimes we blame other monks when they enforce the rules or remind us of the rules. This is where we need patience and humility if we're to grow and learn. And that's why we come together and practice uh, confession, confession of offences every two weeks. Confession of offences really means revealing our mistakes, our unmindful behaviour to another monk <coughs> so that we can become more mindful and aware for the future. If we never own up, reveal, or be honest about our behavior, then obviously it's difficult to change for the better. And in the society, often people favor the way of suppression and hiding mistakes because often they're afraid of consequences that they'll be looked down on by others or punished or lose favor in some way. But for a spiritual seeker, actually, it's a quality of wisdom and for our benefit to actually reveal mistakes, unwholesome tendencies of body, speech and mind to a trusted fellow bhikkhu. 
So every two weeks we, we practice that. We confess offenses or reveal our offenses. And we're constantly open to admonition <clears throat> as part of our training. And the Buddha mentioned over and over again that he's one who will admonish. He said he's not going to spoil the bhikkhus because they'll never learn. But admonition is done out of compassion and wisdom for our benefit. Again, it's not a punishment, it's actually imparting knowledge and advice and instruction that help us, can help us to grow. So for the one admonishing another, that's the intention one has when one reminds another bhikkhu of <coughs> a rule of training and a rule of practice. If you think about it, it's a very mature way for a group of people to live. There's nothing commercial involved, there's nothing, there's not, one's not seeking any personal gain or benefit from this. Practicing properly, it's simply we're supporting the good practice of everyone in the monastery when we try to follow the Vinaya and when we encourage others to follow the Vinaya. <coughs> Vinaya obviously isn't, isn't just for Bhikkhus, for Samaneras, Anagarikas, lay people, eight preceptors, five preceptors. It covers every aspect of society, the Buddhist society, you might say. So we're encouraged to learn about our behavior in this way. And it's a way you can learn. Once you have practices, you have precepts, you have training rules, agreed practices in a monastery, training practices, then you have a standard to measure your own behavior by. So it helps you to get to know yourself better and it starts to expose where our more unwholesome tendencies which we're aiming to abandon come up. You can learn, see where your greed, your attachment, sometimes it's an attachment to material things, sometimes an attachment to a person, you can see where these attachments come up, where they stimulate greed or aversion in our daily life. Yolumpocha said we should reflect on this and value the Vinaya and the monastic training because it's giving us a support that we need in the beginning. He compared it to a coconut husk. When you go and buy coconut from the market, you, know, you tend to buy a coconut in its husk and you carry it home before you break it open and use the coconut flesh or the drink the milk. The coconut husk has that value, keeps and protects the flesh and the milk inside. If there's no husk, then <clears throat> you might lose everything. And Vinaya is like that. If we don't follow the Vinaya, then... Um, you know, it's difficult to develop higher dhammas or samadhi or insight. So it's like the coconut husk. Obviously, the more you practice, hopefully you become used to the Vinaya. So it's just second nature becomes normal for you. And then you don't really have to think very much about it, although we still review it every two weeks. It's like you can set aside that coconut husk 
because you understand it, it's done its job, and then you can work more efficiently internally with your mind, training in <clears throat> the development of mindfulness, four foundations of mindfulness, and penetrating the four noble truths. But we do need that initial support of the Vinaya to train. If we never quite see that or value that, then we tend to be blocked or stuck in our practice. We never quite get beyond you know, the, 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 initial, the sort of coarser mind states, coarser moods that we can get caught into as humans. Always just following our preferences, you know, I like this and I don't like that. Once we do practice more, get used to the Vinaya, then the mind tends to settle down very easily. When you come to meditate, there's more <clears throat> mental energy available to direct to the practice of mindfulness. And we're more able to contemplate. Your aim in this practice is to get to the point where you can contemplate your experience as Dhamma. Where you're not caught up into your preferences of, and biases of mind, always caught into the desires, pleasure-seeking, and the aversions and the irritations. Even though they may arise, your aim is to get to the point where you can contemplate them for what they are, just passing transient mental states that in the end you know, have no real value in themselves. <clears throat> you notice how when we begin the training, often every, every thought, every opinion, every mood seems very important. And that's why often you know, people new to the monastery will have differences of opinion, disagreements, arguments, because they take every thought, every opinion seriously. You notice as people grow in the Dhamma and practice more, then that tendency fades. They're more able just to hold an opinion, consider its merits, understand it, and either take it up or discard it as they choose. But they're no longer just a slave to their emotional reactions. You know, it's one of the benefits of long-term practices. You get better at doing that, so you don't suffer so much just with your own thoughts and opinions on things or other people's opinions and things. <coughs> Zajan Chah used to say we're aiming to get to the point where if someone, say, someone criticizes us, we can just contemplate what are they saying? Is it true? Is it not true? If it's true, then there's no need to get angry because what they're saying is true. It helped maybe is helping point out something that we need to improve or learn, learn about. If it's not true, then we can be confident that what they're saying is not true. We didn't do it or didn't make that mistake. So again, we don't need to get angry because it's not true. But to be able to do that, you have to have enough <clears throat> steadiness of mind, enough of a sense of well-being, enough peace, calm, mindfulness, that you can contemplate. If you can't contemplate, that's a sign we need to develop more of these, these, these qualities, these aspects. And Jen Chai used to say, if you, you know, you're developing your practice, you reach a point where 
everything is a teaching. So the praise, the blame you receive, the good things, the bad things, they're all food for Dhamma, food for reflection, food for wisdom. You can start to see how the sense of self forms, how we react with pleasure or displeasure, <clears throat> how that leads on to suffering, how it forms attachment and that leads to suffering. And then you actually enjoy unraveling that process, <coughs> exposing the way suffering arises in the mind because of attachment. Start to enjoy it. So you're not f afraid anymore. Like often when we're new to the Dhamma, new to meditation, you know, we always want to run away, have our free time, our, our private time to meditate, be on our own. And that's understandable, but the more you practice, the less that's important. You don't actually always need to run away and have quiet time. Even if you're in a busy situation, or in a situation that you wouldn't necessarily choose to be in, <coughs> it doesn't matter so much because you can still contemplate and use the different sense impressions you're gaining in that busy situation, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the taste, the touch, the different concepts arising in your mind, whether it's external or internal, you can use it all as food for contemplation. So Ajahn Chah used to talk about this and say, you practice with your eyes open in the sense that you can't always run away from the truth from different experiences. It's impossible in this world. And we get a certain amount of seclusion, but in the end we can't control everything. We also have to learn to contemplate with mindfulness, with wisdom, the different experiences we encounter. And his, again, his reflection was that it actually becomes enjoyable to contemplate because if any mental defilement is exposed during that contemplation, then it's actually to your benefit. If you do have some, say, irritation with yourself or other people or a certain situation, that's showing you where your attachment is. That's showing you where suffering comes from. So you can be happy that you're now seeing the problem and that will lead on to seeing a solution as well. If you're seeing greed arise, greed for other people or possessions or certain things, <clears throat> but you're contemplating, then you can be happy to see that greed because now you know what the problem is. And you, you notice with meditators and people who practice Buddhism over many years, often they're not doing this, they haven't learned to contemplate. They tend to still run away from things and people that they don't like, they still tend to be stuck in their habits of behavior, so they're always very limited. And from that, they're not actually growing in mindfulness and wisdom maybe, and, and maybe not actually enjoying the practice so much, because they're still as if pushed around by their own moods and opinions. You notice in you know the great teachers that we meet, some of the ones who come here or we go and visit in Thailand, they have this <coughs> quality, a certain 
brightness to them. And this leads to a certain um, courageousness, self-confidence that seems to come out in their, their way of speaking and acting the way they are because they can contemplate things as Dhamma. They don't have to fear their own emotional reactions. They don't have to run away. They don't sort of behave one way to your face and then another way behind your back. You know, they've gone beyond that, that more normal way of human behavior. They've learned to really contemplate everything as Dhamma, good and bad. And it's not that you seek out bad experiences just to get wisdom, but if they happen, and sooner or later we do get unpleasant sense contact in different ways, unpleasant, painful things, unwanted things happen, when it does happen, you can contemplate it. So they have this kind of brightness, this kind of twinkle, where they're not that scared of things. They might, may not be physically strong or... You know, they're not aggressive, but they're not scared either. That's because the power of mindfulness and wisdom is established. <clears throat> they know their mind, they can see a defilement arise, and they know a defilement as a defilement. In the beginning of our practice, we tend to <clears throat> run away from defilements. We run away from situations that stir them up, <clears throat> or else we tend to be very stubborn. We don't admit them, we hide them, <clears throat> we try and make excuses for them, um, we kind of embellish and embroider them, cover them over with other things. But the advanced practitioner, you might say, they do the, exactly the opposite. They don't cover over their defilements, they don't hide them, they don't run away from them. They want to root them out, because they know it's in their own interest. They're actually interested to contemplate even some of their more unpleasant reactions, unpleasant experiences, because they know that will feed wisdom into the mind. So the longer you practice, the more you appreciate the, the value of this training, how you know, the Vinaya you learn, the monastic routines, <coughs> the simplicity, and then these qualities of patience, humility, and then dedication to learning and developing mindfulness, you appreciate these are such valuable qualities for us as human beings. Unfortunately, out there in the world, <clears throat> these qualities are much more patchy, harder to find. You know, they may be there, but it's very easy to lose them for yourself and other people lose them as well. <clears throat> So this is why it's so stressful living in the world. And people are constantly following Kilesa, suffering because of it, running away from Kilesa, hiding Kilesa. They're not really reflecting with wisdom on their experience, or not to a deep level. So unfortunately, you know, they keep getting stressed, keep having suffering. You know, Buddhist monasteries are perhaps one of the few places in the world where you can really study your own mind, come to understand where suffering comes from and what to do about it and go beyond it. It's not impossible to practice in the lay life, but it's much harder. 
So while we have this chance, staying in the monastery, then really use it, use the opportunity. Because, you know, the karma that we make, the uh, changes for the better that we experience through our practice in the monastery are so valuable. You, know, you can't really compare anything else in in life to this, even though at the time it often seems difficult. We may have doubts and feel that our practice is not going as well as we w wish. Try to not overlook the very powerful effect of living in a monastery, training in this Vinaya, training in the Dhamma, training your mind. Try not to overlook that, the value of it, the power of it. It's a <clears throat> tried and tested way that really can help human beings to improve and to be happier. So I obviously have a <clears throat> bit of a throat illness at the moment, so I'll just say these words tonight.